What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent, and personal development. My name's Coach Yas, and I'm a UEFA licensed football coach, coach developer, and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons, and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right, guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas, and today I've got a very special guest with me. My guest this morning is Les Howie. Morning, Les, how are you? Good morning, Yasser. Very well, thank you. And good morning to everyone listening. Brilliant. Uh, Les, just for those that aren't familiar with yourself and the work that you've done in the past, would you mind just giving us a brief backdrop as to what that is? Yeah, surely. I've, uh, I'm very fortunate. I've worked for the English Football Association now for a couple of 23 years in a variety of roles. Amazed most notably for uh, a coach's point of view, I had a number of years as the head of grassroots coaching. And for the last 18 months, I've worked in FE Education as the senior lead on relations. Brilliant. You know, I just want to take you back to the start of that journey. You know, uh, you're talking about working heavily in grassroots aspect of, of the game. Um, where did that journey start from you? You know, where did you? What, what was it that caught you right about coaching? Uh, for me, the journey starts 40 years ago when I was a 16-year-old. Uh, I grew up in a place called Walls End, which is uh, near Newcastle in the northeast of, of the country. Um, and like many of the young young boys and men there. Um, we, we, we just grew up playing football. We played in the back lanes. We, we played in the street, on the fields. Think Coronation Street, those, those rows of colliery houses uh, with the back lanes where you'd play against the wall, you'd play spot against the wall, you'd play doors, you'd play three pots in. Um, we'd climb over the fence onto the playing field at the end of our street. We'd climb to get into the, the school grounds. Uh, you'd play in the schoolyard. And, and for a lot of us, we'd then go to the local boys' club, which was... Um, an epicenter really for where, where, where you'd go and you'd play and I had the small tight five-a-side courts uh, and I wasn't a player. In them days though, there wasn't youth football that, that we have now and, and the growth of it um, but at an early age when I was about 15 um, you know one of the leaders there took it you know really started talking about how he was getting involved in refereeing and administration and coaching and I saw that as a route to, 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 to be involved in the game and, and that's what I did and just say my, my coaching journey started really as a 16 year old eh? mm. 
you talked you know, about you know having that opportunity to kind of delve into the different aspects of the game. Um, and I think we can both agree that for a lot of us, we kind of go into the coaching world because of our passion for the game and, you know, just want to be involved in it in some way. And, you know, obviously from where you started to where you are now working, um, you know, more predominantly in a coach education space, how, what, what, you know, what was that journey like from then till now? Um, obviously now, you know, you, you've recently left the FA. Um, but that, you know, that 40 years is a long, you know, long time. <laughs> It, it, it is and it's interesting when you reflect back about how you change how you develop how you, um, you get different ideas obviously to get more experience um, I think it, it, it's really important that you're always open to learn um, and I'm in I'm, you're right I'm now in a position where I'm transitioning out of the FA in, in the coming months um, but if you go back then if you go back when I was like six, probably like 16 to 20 uh, time the the Opportunity to go on coaching courses really didn't exist. And in them days, it was the prelim. And I can remember doing my prelim. Uh, there was no prelims in Northumberland. I had to go to Durham to do my prelim. Uh, having to get on the Metro. And we did it on a bit of spare ground outside Gateshead Stadium. Um, and that's where we did the prelim. Um, on 10 Wednesday nights, back in about 84, 85. So... It, it, there, was, there wasn't the places to go that there is now. So there wasn't like podcasts like this. There wasn't the, the internet. There wasn't the, um, there wasn't the coaches associations as such. You know, the, the, there was irregular courses that the FA put on um, that you could get on. And that was what was the only way. I can, I can remember, is, is a, um, we, we not long had a video recorder. And at Christmas, the BBC showed all of Charles users. Um, the soccer skills uh, book, tactics and skills, and recording them on the video over Christmas, because um, that was the only way really to get access to that information at that time was what you saw on the telly. And, and we talk now to, to, to coaches about the opportunity to learn and develop. You go back then. We, we we brought up as a generation, we had two live football matches on the telly a year. There was the FA Cup final, was England Scotland. They didn't even show the England games live. It was a really important World Cup qualifier. Then you had the World Cup of European, even then the European Championships were, were eight teams. So that access was, was much more limited now, where there's more opportunity to develop, to look, to learn, to do your own, to be an independent learner. And I don't think that was there then. So there's real opportunity now, I think, for coaches. So, so that's how my journey started, just, just being um, wanting to stay involved in the game, wanting to put something back and just starting as that voluntary coach very wet behind the, the ears and just an enthusiast that's fantastic you know just for those that aren't familiar with the prelim badge and what exactly that is what, what would that be the equivalent to today well in theory the prelim is the equivalent of the level two okay when the conversion came in the in the 90s but the context of it is the prelims about the same number of hours as a level one right yeah, and I think that's how coach development has evolved. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say what has happened in the past was wrong, because that 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 was appropriate for where the, where we were then. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the but the prelim as such, it didn't include anything like um, first aid wasn't included. First aid didn't come along part of education courses until after the Hillsborough disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, Safeguarding wasn't included then, which is obviously a vital important part of of education now. So the education has evolved as the games evolved as it should do, but. But the prelim really it focused on the um, on the skill, 
and then into a technique practice and into a small side of game. And you had to be the coach in all three. And there was a written exam. And then you do your written exam, you do your assessments. And the written exams used to go off to Potter's Bar uh, to be to be assessed and marked. And then about six weeks later, you'd either get your um, no, you've been unsuccessful, or yes, you've 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 passed in here certificate. You used to then get your silver badge uh, off your feet, and you used to then be able to buy cloth badges to sew onto your tracksuit. Okay, and obviously then you, know, you talk there about I'm just I'm just picturing it now and how things have maybe transitioned and moved along so much. So you know, over the, over that you know that that was the initial four or five year period of you getting involved in coaching. You've done your prelim badge. Where does that journey go from being, you know, a prelim badge holder all the many years ago to now, you know? Yeah, I, I, I probably around about you know, growing up in, in the northeast at a time, um, left school with my um, three O levels and my my, my CSE, um, and it was just I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I probably made a decision that I wanted to work in sports development. I had the youth opportunity programs at a time, worked in offices and factories. Um, you know, I think people got to think about what what the country was looking like in that late seventies, early eighties, which is the, the the time I'm talking about. I'm sure some of your listeners will relate to that. Some it'll just be they'll not they'll not understand what it was like then. Um, and I really I, I wanted to get involved, maybe in 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 the coaching sports development. And I got a job with North Tyneside Council working in sports development as an eighteen year old. And you know, we took even the language I'm using. It wasn't this was a forerunner to what is now sports development. It, it, you know, we're working in what was a recreation, it was called a recreation amenities department. Um, it was the parks, cemeteries, swimming pools and leisure. And um, so I got a job there and it was a small team and it meant really in the three years, four years I was there, you had to do lots of different aspects. So, we, we, you know, one of my roles was about setting up um, summer programmes and um activities and I remember that we had a budget so we'd bring in superstars at the time so we'd bring in um, like Sue Barker would come do a tennis session and then there'd be tennis coaching linked to it Brian Jack's coming in doing our fitness Duncan Goodyear linked to swimming um, Jack Charlton would come and do a soccer clinic uh, so it was all of almost that sort of activities and some of the programs I remember even to the stage of where I'd be designing myself the the, the posters and sometimes the poster would literally made drawings that would then print and distribute to schools. And I'd be doing the bookings, booking the coaches. So it was a great learning opportunity. And maybe one of the challenges I think now, I was doing that in my, four, my, my O levels. Probably now, them sort of jobs would be seen as a second job, would be seen as, a, as the person's second step on the career. And you'd have to have your degree to do it. When, and I do worry sometimes that we've over professionalized the industry. Where it's all very academic based now, and I think that that's that maybe one we'll, we'll discuss later. But and I think that that's a sports development issue about that. But the practicalities of running events. So at 18, 19, 20, as a twenty-year-old, um, it was the International Year of Youth, and going to persuade North Tyneside Council to run the North Tyneside International Youth Football Tournament in nineteen eighty-five. Um, which was a 20 year old writing the paper, getting the funding, attracting the teams, and we ran a tournament uh, in Whitley Bay, uh, which then ran for about 10 years after that, even, even after I'd left. So it was a really exciting time that you had opportunities to do stuff that I don't think I was there now. So I, I went into recreation meetings, which is now sports development, worked there for a number of years, 
probably recognised I wasn't going to get any further without then the qualification. Um, and I, it, a 22-year-old went to Sunderland Polytechnic and did a two-year certificate in community and youth work. So that's what my qualification is in. Uh, spent some time being a youth worker and then went back to North Tyneside Council as a um, sports development officer. Uh, then that was at the time North Tyneside Council was about the time of the pull tax and North Tyneside Council were, um, had, uh, were charged by the government of putting the pull tax up too high and um, there was a number of cutbacks and I then moved to Nottingham to run a youth charity in Nottingham at about the age of 26. Um, so at the age of 26, uh, left the North East, moved down to Nottingham and all in that time I was doing that and still involved in football as a referee, as a coach, as a volunteer. And very much in that uh, volunteering capacity then as a 26-year-old moved to Nottingham and worked in a youth charity. But again, in that, really in that field of working with volunteers, helping develop activities for young people, uh, training and resource for young people and, and continue as a volunteer in football in that time as well. You talk, you know, you, you know, you're kind of giving a brief insight to some of the changes that have happened over the years certainly from a grassroots setting to, to where it is now. And one of the things we touched there is about um, maybe over-professionalising the industry. Um, you know, I, I, I agree with you. I think it probably, can, it probably can be considered that, but I think maybe that's probably gone in line with how how many more people are going to university. So they have to kind of somehow filter it out. Do you know what I mean? Um, Absolutely. And I think it's that balance as well. And look, don't get me wrong now academia and knowledge and, and about but but the practical application of it becomes important as well um you, you know and i think that that and i think that becomes important that, that we understand the reality and the pragmatic approach to to coaching or to development as well so th there is a balance but you know i'm not wanting to come across as a um the, the pastor was better but but it is always understanding what what progress of where the industries come in the last 30, 40 years. Um, Twitter is a profession now, but we've always got to keep maintain that authenticity about the ability to do it on the grass or the ability to do it in, in the organisation of events as well. 100%. You know, so, you know, speaking about, you know, you know how, how much the game has changed. And so wh what were the biggest changes that you started to see? When, you, when did you see maybe you started some of the biggest shifts in, in the other side of I, I think we, we look at it. I'd probably say the... Um, the birthplace of modern football development and modern... So I'll talk about football development would probably be um, the chart for quality in, in, what was that, about 98. Um, Howard Wilkinson was a technical director at the FA at the time. It was about 96 he started the consultation. I like Robin Russell, John McDermott, Kelly Simmons, and obviously John's back now as technical director. Les Reed was involved in that at the time. So people who are still around the industry and have still great influence on the industry as well. And Kelly's obviously director of women's football at the FA, um, the, the women's professional game. So I think those people really about what what the game needed. If you think we'd, we'd seen the national school at Lillishaw, those end with Howard working with the clubs, we'd seen the Premier League and being formed in 92 that recognition about more opportunity to develop players. So there was all these changes going on as well. Um, we'd seen youth football go through a massive growth spurt, particularly as almost my generation, probably the one just after me, most of our youth football would have been through schools and then the odd youth football. That relationship changed because almost schools football never quite recovered after the industrial dispute of the late 
eighties, um, mid to mid eight, mid to late eighties, and after that, almost what we saw is that the, the, the balance just changed from where it was predominantly old schools, a little bit of youth, and then gradually to where we where we have it today, where most footballs in in youth and schools do a brilliant job of what what, what they do. Um, so you've got those change from a coach development point of view. Um, if you look at the history of it, so you go back to almost where the, the Alan Wade and, and, and the books around coaching, actually, if you read some of them now and, and look at the, the stuff Charles and, and Robin and the coaches that time produced, um, a lot of similarity, a lot of key messages you get that, that come through as well that are still pertinent today. And, and actually, with, with everything that went on, it couldn't have happened without what's happened in the past. I think all too often, amazing, I think it's something to do with our society at the minute, we only just think about today and tomorrow. And actually, to be where we are today, it needed that yesterday. So if you look back in that, that modern football development, modern coach development, actually without the work of what Alan Waden when he just done was the coaching programmes, without then how it was built on with Charles and the and, and Robin and the um and the work there, then almost to Howard and the Charter for Quality. The Charter for Quality, if you think back about as well, talk about the introduction of academies. But it also was at the time around the um, development of the women's game, uh, charter a charter mark that became charter standard clubs, which really drove the coaching and mini soccer, um, and the um, safeguarding process as well. And then from that, you talk look at the work that when Trevor came in as technical director, there wasn't out that title at the time uh, around the emphasis on youth coaching and youth development and the youth review, and then on to Dan and the work around the. Um, DNA. So all the time, though, you can actually look back at how each technical director has been able to build on what was there before to drive the change forward. And I think that's important because without those building blocks, you couldn't just move stuff on now. No, I totally agree. And I think it always is, you know, to kind of whatever's happened was almost laid the foundations for what comes next. And, you know, just, just, just on that, then you're know, speaking of foundations. So when did you find yourself getting more heavily involved in the coach education aspect of things? Yeah, um, <clears throat> so I was involved in in, in, that, in that youth space in in then and work I did with what was then the National Association of Boys Clubs at the time and National Association of Clubs for Young People. Um, in nineteen ninety eight, I talked about the Charter for Quality. In nineteen ninety eight, um, the Football Association went through an expansion as part of the Charter for Quality. They advertised for a uh, football development team to come in particularly about to drive the mini soccer and the charter charter mark as it was called then for clubs um, in there. So it was a team put together in the technical division under Howard and Robin. Uh, John McDermott was a national manager and five staff got appointed. I applied for one of those roles. I'd worked in Nottinghamshire for about eight, eight years then. I was probably in the stage where it was comfortable. Um, the job was the job. I enjoyed it, but I knew how, you know, I got very comfortable. I'd managed to get start getting on the golf course two, three times a week. Um, and I saw this job advertised in The Guardian for, um, for a football development officer uh, for the FA. And I applied and I was successful. And, and that's how I then joined the FA back in 1998. The day I joined was the day after we'd lost, one, uh, lost on penalties to Argentina. And it was the day of a fire at Lancaster Gate. Um, and the whole staff at the FA totaled about 140, 150 was the total staff um, that I came into. So that's when I came in, very much around the implementation of Charter for Quality, 
in the grassroots space at Adoption Mini Soccer. Because again, many people on on the call now, on the podcast now, we've got to remember that 20 years ago, 25 years ago, everyone played 11 aside. If you were six-year-old, seven-year-old, you played 11 aside on the same size pitch as a Premier League. And the goalkeeper defended the same size goal. And that was one of the big changes. And when we introduced Money Stock, I remember going around the country and into what was then smoke-filled rooms and we were being accused of denying people civil liberties and we're going to ruin the game. Um, and it was a really difficult sell. There was actually a, a demonstration on Lancaster Gate around about with people protesting against the introduction of mini soccer. Well, if I turned around to anyone now and said, oh, we're going to have nine-year-olds playing on a full-size pitch, they'd absolutely think we'd gone duality. And so some of these major changes and weren't introduced then, I think have been real game changers. Well, why do you think it took, you know, just using that change alone, why do you think it took so long for that sort of change to come in? Because I think people get used to a tradition. Change is often difficult. You've got to sell the benefits of change. And that was a big thing about taking people with you and sell the benefits of what we're trying to do. I remember in being in, in a meeting in one part of the country and, and the biggest argument against why we couldn't change was they'd been playing for this cup since 1906. And I said, well, you can still play for the cup, but you just play seven aside, not 11 aside, you know? But that, that, was the, that was the argument about that whole understand about we've always done it. Um, but if you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always had. So it's really important. That sometimes you've got to take a step back and say, what, what changes needed? So the whole concept of that mini game, about playing on smaller pitches, about smaller numbers, about more touches of the ball, the greater involvement in the game. You'll start a bit to replicate the game, so you'll get the, the, the patterns of the game. It was about selling that. We've got to remember at the time as well, we talked about coach development. I spoke about the challenges I had about going on courses when I was younger. Access to courses was not what it is today. We had a junior team manager's course, which was 10 hours, then you went to your level two, and then you went to your UA for B, and your UA for A. So, um, we didn't have many qualified coaches involved in the game. I think Sport England did a survey, and you're talking about less than 1% of youth teams in the country had someone with a coaching qualification. It was enthusiast volunteers who were doing a great job and doing their best. But we recognised, well, we had to change the game, and we had to change how we supported our volunteers to make it the best environment for the players coming through. Um, in there. So at the time we were doing the change in mini soccer and winning the hearts and minds about introducing the game, um, get the right, that right environment and, and selling the benefits of that was then also working about what do our club environments look like and, and how do we get more qualified coaches at that, at that introductory level to then introduce children to the game properly. Yeah. And just on that, you know, so we're looking at obviously back then you had junior team managers qualification level two and obviously still at UA for BNA. Coach education has changed massively over the years, isn't it? Certainly since I started coaching ten years just over ten years ago. Um you know, I consider myself fairly fortunate because I was exposed to some of the older pathway or what was older in relation to me and what is kind of where it shifted to now, you know, with the you know the introduction of the youth awards, the advanced youth award and whatnot. What would you say are the, are the biggest benefits that you've seen in the changes so far because a lot of coaches you know that have had this discussion would say that actually it's great that it's now moved to a more a holistic level of development um, or holistic perspective of development and I think that's not just football I think it's just sport in general I think the way you know we talk there about development and everyone having degrees and whatnot I 
think that's what's also been brought to the game, which is which is fantastic. But do you think that maybe it's shifted too far away from where it was before, potentially? No, I think I. But when I probably started my coaching journey, it was very descriptive. It was almost, this is the way you teach how to pass the ball, and this is the only way you teach how to pass the ball, and you will follow what I've shown you to teach how to pass the ball. But I think probably the biggest move we've made is almost, we just want to, we'll spend time learning about coaching. And because of the, the way society's changed with access to internet, um, video games, watching TV more, opportunity to practice more, you will actually make your own mind up on almost what, what is the right way to do it. But we, we'll, always, we'll concentrate on the, how to teach, how to coach, how to create environments. And the other aspects, I think, come, come from that. We'll give you ideas. Um, and I think that, that's probably been a big change. But it's still important that we do embed technique, that we do spend time on that. Um, but I think what we've probably changed as well is that we're, you know, I was brought up on almost the, the, the emphasis was on the mistake, where I think now the emphasis is on <clears throat> what goes well and how do we help and what might help you. And, and we think about the, the um, different interventions. I can remember talking, we were 10, 15 years ago, particularly around some of the youth review stuff about what you know, the debate for me became about actually as coaches, his coach, I, I, I equated that to, I grew up in the Northeast. My, my, my uncle was a joiner, worked on the shipyards, swan hunters um, on the River Tyne there, and been amazed as a child how in his toolbox he'd have six saws, eight or nine chisels, different hammers, and not understand why. And I think it's the same with us as coaches, but actually, as a master craftsman, he understood how he used each one of those tools had a different way of using it. And the same for us as coaches. It's about recognising we have a number of interventions and it's about the expertise because of what intervention to use when and where. So I don't know having debates with people saying, so you're saying stop, stand still is not appropriate. No, stop, stand still is still appropriate in time and place, but understanding why and how you've used it. Command style is still an important intervention, but understand why. So when I still ran a grassroots team, on a Saturday afternoon, we would use command style sometimes. We had to. In training on a Tuesday night, we'd use lots of guided discovery. And it's understanding as a coach, actually, this is now my toolkit. Or for those that play golf, these are my 14 clubs, but I know how to use each club in a variety of ways. That's what coaching is. It's about understand what's in your toolkit, what's in your locker, and how you use them, and how you might have to adapt, and how you might have to change. And I'd like to think that's how the coaching courses have changed. And this isn't any criticism I've about before. Uh, one of my colleagues that used to work with us at EFA, I was talking to the other week, um, John Olpress, he used a great analogy, John, and he was talking about um, times change, technology changes, and he used the analogy, in the 1940s, the Spitfire saved democracy in the Western world, but you wouldn't want the RAF flying sorties with the Spitfire in 2020. And, and that's the same. That you know, everything will evolve. One of the favorite pictures I use when, when I do coach development, I do mentoring courses, is a picture from and it's a, um, it's uh, Hyde Park in London Lake. I think it's, it's one of the lakes in London, one of the parks in London, turn of the uh, 19th to 20th century. And it's um, Edwardian dress teaching people how to swim. 
and I keep using the analogy, if I told someone how to swim like that a day, I'd be sent to prison because they've literally got ropes tied around their necks to keep them afloat. And But that was cutting edge education 120 years ago. And by the way, what we are doing now will be out of date in, in five years' time. The game always evolves. How we learn will always evolve. And we've always got to be open to new ideas and new, and new ways of working. I totally agree with that. I think you're right. There is always going to be an evolving aspect to it. People are always going to have new ideas and new ways of working, which I think is, is, is very important to highlight. Um, but what and, I, and so, yeah, just to say as well, but some of what we did in the past was good as well. And that's the whole point about actually part of education because about understanding what works for you and when and where. And just because it worked that week doesn't mean it'll work this week. And, but, and that's why we need the complete, the, the, the toolkit to go with it. Um, so bits, bits of everything. So what happened, what we did in the past, some of that was still good. You know? And what we'll do in the future, just because that's the future, doesn't mean we should, oh, no, the past was always best, or the future, no, no, it's not. Actually, it's about understanding about what works when and where and how. Mm. And that's what coaching becomes about. 100%. But, we, you know, I guess one of the things that I've certainly observed in the coach education pathway for me is, is similar to what you said there. It was quite descriptive and prescriptive before around, okay, this is how you pass the ball, this is this and this is that. Um, now, there's many ways, obviously, to do these different techniques and these different elements of the technical components. However, I feel, from my experience, um, having observed the differences between, I guess, what was 10 years ago and what is now, is there's a lot less input from the, I guess, the, yeah, the education staff around the technical aspects and much more focus around the holistic aspects in terms of the other, other corners. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong or right, but having conversations with a lot of coaches, a lot of coaches are almost uh, split as to whether that's what they came on the course for or whether that's uh, that they've kind of, yeah, that's great, but we still want a bit of that. And they're maybe not getting enough of that. I, I think it's a fair point, point Yaz. And I think it's one of the challenges you always face. And, and as someone who's had to write courses before, this is the challenge you face. If we put everything into level one, that probably we as football and coach, um, you know, um, almost disciples, we would end up with a 200 hour level one. Yeah. It would be absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah but that new volunteer hasn't got 200 hours in fact if anything the pressure we're always under is to reduce our coaching courses in time because the world is a busier place so the pressure all the time is reduce it in time and they can only people can only afford to pay so much so but actually now with resources and you know what you know what you just what we're doing now the opportunity of access to the resource is massive now actually if you want to look at technique FIFA 21, and young people know technique as well because they'll just watch stuff on FIFA 21. Mm. You know, there's a great train tool in there. So I think sometimes we underestimate that the coach is the only answer. The coach has to have all the answers to the players, no, they don't. And the coaching course has to give me all the answers. No, it doesn't. We have to then be looking for different answers and different ideas. And we have to be willing to practice. And, you know, when you do your 24, 30-hour level one, it's actually what you then go away and read and watch and observe and then what you put in the practice on the pitch probably becomes the important bit. And then you go for your next course and you'll join in CPD. You'll go on the FA YouTube channel. Um, you'll watch other coaches work. You'll identify a mentor. 
and you build on it. So there is always that balance between more technique and, and probably at times I think I'd like more technique in there, but I also recognise there's probably 101 places I can get the technique. So it probably comes down to what what is the priority in that 30 hours and probably all we're going to get that initial volunteer for. Mm. What what do you put in there? Because we know safeguarding's absolutely got to go in there. We know first aid's absolutely got to go in there. What else goes in there? What's going to help the coach in that first instance? And I think that that becomes. I mean, I'm just thinking back there. You talk about the the challenge as well. But sometimes people want to do almost. You know, the game of football is messy. Mm. And when we did the uh, the original level one. It was, it was actually a videotape back in uh, 2002. I can even remember the debate about, do we do videotapes or do we do these new fangled DVDs, discs that had just come out? Um, but I'm sitting in, in uh, Soho Square in the office there, and on the vi- on the original one, there's a bit where someone toe-pokes the ball. And so, oh, you can't have someone toe-poking the ball on an FA coaching video. And the day before, Ronaldo had scored a goal in the World Cup final with a toe-poke. It's actually toe poke is part of the game because sometimes when you're under pressure, you just got to get your foot to a band and get it away quickly. Of course, yeah. But but we'd never but in the, we'd never teach that on the coaching course. And so to understand often about it's actually creating opportunities where players experience and, and almost the players build up a toolbox. What is the right technique to use now? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that becomes part of it. So so absolutely spend time as a coach on the technique. I might learn about the technique. And as a coach, when I'm delivering, I'll drop in little nuggets when I'm working and, and, and coaching it. But it's, it's understanding where and when we do that. Mm. And I say understanding about probably more than ever, the opportunity to develop additional knowledge is, is there. As I say, internet, TV. The, the fact that it's probably different now that this afternoon, over this weekend, FA Cup weekend, um, we will probably watch, I know personally, I'll probably watch about 10 different games. I might then pick up some um, some games in, in Italy uh, and, and as well, some games in uh, Spain. Um, so you're going to watch the games and then you've got the analysis that, that again, we didn't have years ago. So you will get, um, you know, the, the, on the Monday Night Football show, you will get Jamie Carragher and Gary Neville dissect and start talking about that. And this is actually what our young players are brought up on now. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I think actually the game understanding now is so much better than it was. Now that gives a different challenge to the coach because we have to keep up to date as well. 100%. You know, in, you know, just to kind of bit, bit, paint a bit more context. So, I mean, I've, I've been working as an affiliate tutor for level, level ones, level twos, and you know, I've had loads of discussions with learners and, and whatnot around this. And you know, I think one of the things I've observed is that you, you talk about it there, you know, people have got access to these sorts of things and the game understanding has developed, but I'm not sure it has it, it, at, at the base level. I think, you know, they've got, they might be becoming more familiar with different terms and types of, types of, uh, you know, strategies and systems and the rest of it. But I think for me, the, one of the biggest things I, I, I see a gap in is, 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 especially for newer coaches coming through, is any understanding of what the principles of the game might be. Um, and I agree there is loads of resources like this, like videos, like YouTube and whatever you whatever you have made. Um, but at the same time, I think you're only going to 
obtain that information if you're a dedicated coach. And I think the problem we've got now is maybe going back when you, know, you talked there about Sport England did a, a survey however many years ago and there was less than 1% of uh, organisations that actually had qualified coaches. I think we've come you know, leaps and bounds since then. You know, you've got the, you've got the charter standard stuff coming. You've got the, you know, every age group has to have at least one, one level one coach or whatever it is now. But those coaches that are there with those level ones, not all of them are there because they actually wanted to go and get a level one, but they were almost mandated to get one. Um, so that, that aspect there, even now, for some coaches, some people that come onto the courses that I've, I've, I've delivered and I've seen delivered, it's, oh, well, why are you here? Well, I'm here because the club told me I have to be here. Straight away, they're never going to obtain that information that's then necessarily needed or, or maybe act beyond that and be proactive to get the information required to maybe support their players to actually become better. They're just doing it to tick a box, if that makes sense. And I know that... Yeah, no, I, uh, absolutely. Now, what, what I'd say, yes, is uh, we'll probably always get that. There'll always be people who are there makes for the wrong reason. But here's the thing. One, they've actually volunteered to do it in the first place. They've mm. volunteered to run a team. So that's a brilliant. They're giving up their time to make a difference in young people's lives and help them run a team. So that's brilliant. They will bring with them some knowledge. And on the course, the number of people, and again, it comes down to the tutor, the ability to infuse, to connect, to plant the seed that you mightn't see this year, but in two years' time you will. And, and, and I think there's always going to be that, the very nature, the size of our sport, there'll be those who, those who just want to get involved, there'll be then those who want to take it further in terms of development because they're, they're going to do podcasts, they're going to go on the internet. There'll be those who want to do more further education and there'll be those who see it as a career. And, and I just got to almost, it is what it is. And in that, but let's, those who want to really develop and progress and, and, and really gain on it, it's brilliant and let's help them do that. And those who I'm there to tick a box, well, let's give you some basic tools that'll help you get through and hope that you then want to do more um, in, in there. But I think we've just got to recognise that everyone comes on the course. Think of that level one comes with a different motivation. But And, and I'm like you, and I, when I, I love going out and delivering the courses because actually it's the opportunity to infuse, to pass on the baton to the next generation. And it isn't always about... I remember when we, when we designed the level one the first time, it was about what would that, what would that grassroots coach need when they run a team? And, and it really is about, actually, there's lots of exit routes to where you might go next. Because it's not just about the coaching, because often the, the person running the team, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not running the team now, that my, you know, my, my son's 21, so his teams all went through the system, went off to university jobs, etc. So I'm actually went, I've now went back out refereeing at the weekend just to stay involved in grassroots and, and do some, do some mentors, some coaches. You, you, you see it. It's just about, for some, it's just about being there and helping put on an activity. For some, it's about how to infuse and take them on. And it's about everyone's got a different reason for being involved in the game. And our job really is to help, just help them be better at what they do. And for some being better, 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This means that they'll be there on time, they'll run a safe activity, and they'll keep that team together and playing every week. Mm, you make a great point there. I think obviously they have volunteered their time. I think it's just about supporting them with whatever we can do even if it is for those ones who aren't as proactive. But I think the key word that you say is about infusing them and in, in, in wanting to kind of continue that journey and have a thirst for it to go beyond where they're currently at. Um, just on that, I want to kind of bring it back to your journey then. You know, you've gone in 1998, one of those regional uh, roles. Things have changed massively over the years and you've ended up at, you know, head of grassroots at the FA. How, how does that happen? Yeah, so I, I worked as a regional manager. In my region, I had 12 county affairs. I went from Shropshire and Worcestershire on the west of the country um, across to Norfolk and Suffolk on the east. So I really did, uh, I covered a massive region in the, in the Midlands there. Um, I then got the opportunity to apply to be the National Club Development Manager. And obviously my background had been almost in that um, clubs. So I'd worked in youth clubs um, and I was successful. I got appointed and my job then was to uh, design and implement the chart start what became the chart standard club program so i worked in that space uh, for a number of years around the volunteer programs chart standard programs and um there'd been lots of changes at the fa with, with different we were in the technical department then we moved to a national game department um and then i got asked to um i got asked to by robin russell to review the junior team managers award because it was predominantly aimed at clubs and to then write what would become a new level one coaching course so i took that piece of work on so almost by then work people like graham keely and jamie houchin uh, who are working as regional managers because we were at a stage then where from a grassroots point of view we were focused much more on football development the coaching bit was in pro license within the technical division there was a gap in there around level one, level two. That's why Robin had asked me to look at it. And probably with Jamie and Graham myself, we just kept the coach head going almost as a, it was what we did on the Friday afternoon as part of our day job, which for me was club development. Um, then there was a few changes. Trevor Brooken arrived. Uh, Trevor obviously had a great passion around player development and coaching. And I was then asked to, go away and do a little review and I came up with a, with a coaching strategy which talked about youth awards and Trevor was really keen around the 5 to 11 being the golden age and again I worked with Kelly around getting funding for the skills programme and that's when we introduced the FA Tesco skills programme um, in that time and almost I evolved I was still almost doing the club job but it went like coaching clubs it started going the other way and then there was a restructure at the FA and I then 
moved to head up the um, the, the grassroots coaching team, which by then we'd reintroduced the regional coaches, um, which we'd lost for a period. We reintroduced the regional coaches in 2005, and in 2007 we went from nine regional coaches to 18, and we introduced the first 66 skills coaches, and then introduced the youth awards, people like Pete Sturges and uh, Paul Holder and John Allpress were working on that, Steve Rutter um, and Jeff Pike and, and uh, Peter Rivier were working around the, the level twos, as it were, um, in the for bees and, and really just working and as, as part of that team. Now, obviously, you, you, you mentioned some names there, and I think now, especially, you know, from my generation of coaches coming through, these are people that, you know, probably seen as senior figures and key figures in, in coach development now. And, you know, I'm just interested to know that in part of your own journey, then who were who some of the senior figures for you coming through? What were some of the biggest lessons you took from them? Okay. And before I do that, I'll just, just go back. One of the things when, when I was putting together that team, I was very keen that everyone have a passion for coaching and player development, coach development, but we deliberately went for people with different backgrounds as well. So you had people like Pete Sturgis, who was an absolute advocate around the younger age groups, who worked in the academy. You had Steve, uh, who worked as a national coach. You had uh, Alan Gillette, um, who'd worked at um, Wimbledon, Watford, who come from a professional game. You had Graham Keeley, who come from teaching and sports development. Um, um, Andy Poole, who come from a goalkeeping background. So really, uh, Julie Chipchase for the girls and women's. Really keen that when we were together as a team, there'd be lots of heated debates in the work because that helps creativity and about pointing people who are different. So there wasn't echo chambers where we were developing people with different ideas who challenge and all the time. And Trevor was really keen that we did that as well. So all the time it was looking about bringing, bringing teams together. And I always worked on the philosophy. Yes. I always look to appoint people who are better than me. And I think that that's a real thing as well, about putting when you put teams together, bring in, bring in against gaps bringing people who are really experts, bringing people who are really good at their jobs. And, and we were really fortunate some of the people we, we brought in then and that we have at the FA now as well. Uh, from a personal point of view, people who've mentored me, there's probably different people at different stages in my career. Um, as, a, as a young coach in the, in the North East, was a guy called Peter Kirkley, um, who was who ran the football section at Wolves End Boys Club. Um, Pete took me under his wings and, and, and really give me that interest in about wanting to look and develop as a coach. Um, when I moved to Nottingham, I, I worked with a guy, my the, the chairman of the charity I was working for was a guy called Morris Udell. And Morris really probably opened doors for me in terms of working more strategically and working at a different level um, because of his contacts. He was involved at the uh, cricket club and at Forest and County. Um, so he opened them doors and really about the, almost how to handle yourself and how to develop networks. Um, and then my time at the FA, it's probably people like uh, Robin Russell, when, when Robin was there, um, Kelly Simmons, um, and then late, later years was, was Trevor Brookin. Um, all people who really, I think, there's something to learn off them and, 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 and value that and what they bring and, and probably learned off, off all of them in that time. Um, but it's, it's always about developing that network and looking about being true to yourself and but but being able to work with people and go and check and challenge yourself as well. So I've, I've been fortunate. I've worked with a number of people over that time um, who have been a real influence on my career. No, definitely. I think you, you sort of talk about some of the lessons that you've learned and it's, it's, it's quite... 
what's interesting is what you said there about managing that team as well, bringing different people, making sure that you're not you're not the best one, and essentially, you know, because I think when you're, it's never it's never a smart idea to be the smartest one in the room, is it? You're, you're always going to be you're going to be making every decision in some ways, and you're never really going to have the true perspective of someone who's a bit more experience in a different in a different way. Yes, yeah, so I've never had that problem. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I, you know, I guess that's a positive in, in many ways. But um, you know, just kind of, kind of on that then, coming back to your grassroots role, for maybe those that aren't too familiar with exactly what what that looked like, would you mind just going into a bit of detail around what the head of grassroots actually does? Yeah, so it, it, it's really different changes. It's it's taking on slightly different aspects. So. Um, that period, probably about 2007 to about 2014, um, it was managing quite a large team, um, working with them, working with Trevor's technical director about identifying where we want to go. So like with the, um, you know, whether it be with the youth review, working with Nick Levitt uh, about, you know, changing, you know, some of the changes Nick held drive through around the, 9v9, which was taking the 7v7 on a step and the 5v5 under 8. You know, we talk about actually simple changes that have been game-changing. You know, probably one of the best ones, I think, cost no money, was the retreat was the retreat for goal kicks in mini-soccer. Yeah? Didn't cost one pence to introduce that, but the, just a little change encouraging teams to play out. Yeah? So it's just working, working support. And so often my job was about support politically. Looking at the strategy, working with um, like Danny Avery and um, to influence above our chief executive and board level to, to get funding that enabled us um, managing, as I say, managing team. And often my I saw my role as a facilitator to enable them to get the best out of them, so they, to get them on the grass. So I would deal with the the politics, the budgets, um, the strategy, um, and 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 yeah, I think and then. Um, was around maybe writing courses. We were at the time getting ready to move into St. George's Park. So it was doing work behind the scenes on that. So it was a lot of, it was brilliant. It was lots of little different things at different times and probably trying to be a generalist. But I saw my big role is about being an enabler to enable the experts on the grass to have the space to be on the grass and to make their life as easy as possible and, and trying to, navigate some of the challenges that we have because like any big organization with change there's challenges and and probably one of my jobs as well was to help um sell the message about what we're doing and why we're doing it and sell the benefits and communicate what we're doing whether it be at a, at a board or chief executive level or when we talk about the, with, with the clubs and leagues and you know i remember going out with um the youth review you know nick fronted that and did a brilliant job um, but we'd go around the country and, and it was a real team effort. So Trevor would be at them. Gareth, uh, in his role as head of, he was head of elite development at the time, national coaches. It was really saying, this is about the game. This is what we're going to make the, the future of the game. And I talked earlier about, you look at where things are built from. Um, I don't think it's any coincidence that the success we saw in our youth squads, it started because of the work Trevor, the work Howard had done at Houston Academies. And then how it had done around coach qualifications in academies. And then what Trevor had done with the um, youth coaching in that two, you know, 2007, 2009. We, you look at the ages of when we're having that success. And then Dan coming in around the, an identity around DNA. You can actually see how that came to fruition. Mm. So, uh, you know, I think that, that what I love 
I was very fortunate. There was no such thing as a typical day. Yeah. And just like any jobs, there's bits for you think, oh, there's sometimes when you're doing the budget, you're just number, you're number crunching and you might as well have much. It's about selling tins of beans, but you understand place and that opportunity to, to be involved, that cutting edge of it was, was really brilliant. Mm-hmm. But again, I think it, the big thing I enjoyed about it was opportunity to work with so many brilliant people, not only the full-time staff at the FA, and uh, but also the volunteers and the clubs and the leagues and the people you'd get. You know, I used to love going out and meeting people and, and seeing the great work that was going on um, and seeing the difference. And and, and, and this is the challenge, guys, and, and, and as you told me, you, you've been on this journey for 10 years. Um, so your perspective is what you've seen in that 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, and that becomes a challenge. I think sometimes in certainly in youth football, it's a transient population. Mm. Now, because I've been around youth football for forty years, I can I can really start seeing their tangible differences, mm. you know, and I can see them. And where people are like, oh, it's it's hardly changed last five years, and, and even just things like you know the work Dermot Collins did around the respect program, mm. massive piece of work there. Um, in, in how that changed, just what the touchlines look like, which then linked into what Pete was doing in the youth awards. And creating environments, mm. so nothing can be seen in isolation. It's actually understanding how it fits together, because um, because actually, when, and when I talk to, is my role developed, and I, and I moved out from that day to day stuff, and and with some of the work I was doing on international relations, was trying to talk to other countries about. There's no point just having a coaching course, because your coaching course then has to link to a player development program, which has to link to what your competition framework looks like, which has to look like what your environment was like, which actually needs a club structure which needs a development strategy, which needs a facility strategy. And by the way, we then also need referees to understand what the game looks like. Yeah. So everything has to be joined together to, to drive it. Otherwise, you will get, you'll only get a little bit of impact. I think that, you know, where we are now is because of decisions that were made 22, 25 years ago. Yeah. And by the way, decisions we're making today will impact what the game looks like in 20 years' time. Yeah. Definitely. I think, you know, you touched on there a few things, you know, I just want to bring you back to one particular thing that you talked about there and that's about challenge. You know, if you talk about some of the challenges that the game has had and the grassroots game has had and a coach education and the rest of it. I'm more interested in that, you know, specifically for you, what was, what's been some of the biggest challenges along your journey? Uh, yeah, and you've had quite a long journey so far and hopefully long, long may that continue. Um, but what would you say has one, been one of the biggest challenges for you and, it, you know, how have you maybe kind of tackled that or is it something that you're still currently potentially dealing with and what are your plans to deal with it if you haven't it's it, it, ch- ch- challenges at times it's um i think some of the things we've got to deal with is is almost one it's hearts and minds it's getting people to recognize something's happened something has to change and you have to take people with you with that um but I think we're in a much, much better place when we're doing that now. I think there's now an acceptance that people want to learn and develop and, and, and are really thirsty for that knowledge that in the past did. So I'd hope what you talk about the, I'm only here because I've got to. I'm, I think maybe 20 years ago, I might have seen that maybe 70% of the learners. I'm hoping today that's maybe 10%. So um, there's always the challenge, I think, as well, that people always want more. And and but and whether we like it or not, the FA just like any organisation, the budget is the budget. I remember doing some media stuff with them, um, going and doing some um, 
on talk sport and radio finals and critics, oh, shouldn't, shouldn't the FA spend more on coaching or the, the courses are too expensive and and this is the balance. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, as a coach advocate, I would love more budget on coaching. Now tell me what we shouldn't fund because do we not fund the girls' women's game? Do we not fund disability football? Do we not fund referee development? Do we not fund facility development? Remember what I said? Actually, the whole ecosystem needs everything. Now, and, and that becomes the, the challenge. It's getting people to, to put a value on something. You know, I think, you know I, I think it's got better, but in, I can bring some really big debates about cost for coaching courses is far too expensive. Well, education is not cheap. I remember having a debate where people say, oh, the, the A licence is um, £4,000 for your A licence. Yeah, but it's a degree level qualification. It's £9,000 a year plus your accommodation to your degree. What? You know, it's a professional degree level qualification. Um, even when you took the level one, the level one about 150, it's been about 150, 170 the last 10 years. Um, good, good look at doing a level one in, in ballroom dancing. It's £200. So I think sometimes it's that, one of the challenges I think is sometimes people want football on the cheap. And, and I get it, so do I. But that understanding about the, there's other demands on the budget as well. Um, and about that that bigger picture um, sometimes comes in there. But going back to what I probably said 20 years ago, as a, as a coaching disciple, I would love everyone to have an A licence and to have done... You know, I, I went across to Iceland on a UEFA study visit a couple of years ago and the uh, Icelandic FA were talking about how everyone uh, who runs their grassroots football has a UEFA B and they're all paid the equivalent of €18,000 a year. But Iceland's half the size are not enough full population so on oh, by the way it's 700 euros to have your kid at a football club where as you know Yaz if we charge if one of our grassroots clubs is charging 200 pound a year there's parents usually complain that's too expensive so it's like everything you make a choice don't you 100 percent. i think you know it's interesting to hear about that aspect of things that like they've got ufb coaches i think another thing that obviously then comes into that it's Yes, whilst the qualification is still recognised and ratified by UEFA, the depth in which you go into the education, different levels across the different, uh, you know, uh, countries within the UEFA, you know, the UEFA Culture Convention, that varies massively as well. Um, and I think that's often been a, you know, a talking point of the English FA, and that why is it expensive? But, you know, similar to you, I think education costs, you know, I, I totally agree with that. And I think a lot of people over, overshadow the fact that actually, a lot of the the, the coaching pathway in England, in England, the courses are a lot more in depth than what you probably potentially get in the other in the other uh, you know national associations. And would you mind just maybe sharing some of the insights around that and and, and try and maybe clear up any misunderstandings around that aspect of things for people that may, might listen to this? Yeah, I think you're right. It depends what you want to do, doesn't it? And and we we have put an emphasis, I will think on. Um, and, and, and this is it, you know, every federation runs a programme that's appropriate to their, to their football. Now, I think what we try to do is look at what the needs of the coach are and how we're best able to support them at different levels of the game. Um, and I know there's then actually, oh, your course is too long, but if you think about the B licence, is there, it's the access point to get a job in an academy and it's probably the access point to get a job in paid football. And, and we're paying people 
in the B licence to have his work in a Premier League academy. Now, I know now it's eggs expanding, you do the youth award, advanced youth, and you probably need an A licence as well. So it's about understanding almost what are the courses there for and what they're trying to achieve. And even go to, in short term, I've always, I've always, if I had to stand in front of someone, I've always, I've always described it as this, level one, will you send your son or daughter to that club on a Saturday morning, Tuesday night, to have safe, purposeful activity? And will you pay your 20 quid a month subs? Is it safe? Is it fun? And has it got a purpose? Level two, would you pay to send your son or daughter to a soccer school with that person? Is it safe? Is it fun? Bit more knowledge and proven technique. UEFA-B, would you employ this person in your academy? UEFA-A, would you employ this person full-time as a youth team coach? UEFA-Pro, are you going to have this person be your first team? Now, that's very simplistic, and I've probably just talked through what's 20 pages of the convention, but I think it's that understanding. And then when you break it down, you look at level one, it's about, it's about circa 170. That's a 30-hour course. It's about six quid an hour. Show me another course, education course out there, six pound an hour. And, and, and again, it's, it's what do you want? How are we preparing you? Um, in... In, in them and what do you want to achieve? And then, and, and, then, and, and again, we look at our air license. The air license is designed because it's designed to give you the ability to coach in the Premier League or the Women's Super League. Yeah. Now, on, on that, then things have obviously changed massively over the last 10 years. Um, certainly, while I've been obviously introduction of each and whatnot, and obviously a lot of a lot more roles are being required to have an air license, including people working in the foundation phase and um in and around those age groups when i first you know stepped into the coaching world I, that was my understanding the a license is geared around people who want to work in the 11th year, 11th year environment at the highest level i.e potentially youth team coach maybe working what was then potentially reserves but now as part of a first team setup why is it now that then in foundation phase they're being asked to have a ua for a license i, I think a lot of the um the, the leagues introduced that as, as a way almost about to help them. The, the coaches need that understanding of where the transition's going. I think it was a recognition of some of that knowledge in there. I think it's a debate that at some stage we revisited about what is the appropriate qualification that, that people need at different at different stages in their career. I think it's a it's a debate that that is perennially had and it'll probably go on for some time. There'll be there's some school of thought that um I've never done my A license. Yeah. And and I I made that decision, had the opportunity to do it, but I made that decision. Actually, as a grassroots coach, which is where I spent my time when I did coaching, I very rarely got the opportunity to use what I'd learned on my B license. Yeah. So I made a decision that wasn't for me. And I think it's but I get it now because people need it for the role. Hmm. Why, why they're going and doing it and I think there will be a debate sometime in the future about actually why do people need things and what what's the reason and is there other routes and then what's great about education it's always evolving hmm. and there's some brilliant staff in the FA education department who will who are real experts in football but also in education who are able to and I think he'll as we get through COVID you know which has caused challenges for everyone will be using the opportunity to look at actually what what is the what do pathways look like? 
because it's always under discussion. And just because that's the pathway today, it doesn't mean it's always got to stay that way because the game will always change. Hmm. Yeah, you're just on that. You talked about the game always changing, so I guess... You know, if I gave you a chance to go back to, you know, the start of your coaching journey, you know, 40 odd years ago, you know, having all the experiences now and observing what you've been able to observe now, what would be a message that you'd want to maybe give Les Howie back then? Oh, what, 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 again, what advice would I give myself back then? Um, I think I'd be saying, look, be open-minded and just be a sponge. I might also tell myself to keep your mouth shut more and listen more. Um, one mark and two is do more listening. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think but that sometimes is the um, exuberance of youth yeah. um, in there. But it, it, it would be as well that be patient, don't be in a rush. Yeah. And I think if I was talking, you know, when I talk to you know, I've talked to my own children, I, I, you know, I mentor some of their friends or the, or the players that I've, I've coached in the past. And, you know, I talk about actually having a game plan, understanding where you want to be at different times in your career. Mm. Um, twice I moved, I've talked you through some of the jobs I've done, twice I took opportunities to move for, um, took gambles, probably because less money, but was, what would give me, particularly in that 22 to 35, 22 to 33 time, in what would give me longer term. Yeah. And it's almost that, that patient understanding and where do you want to be, what's your CV got to look like, uh, continuing your networking, um, and probably never forget where you've come from as well. So I, I, I do think sometimes I, I come across people just in a rush, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, I've come across and um, they're 25, they're on their, they're on their air licence and they finished their UEFA B a year ago and they finished their level two. You, it's just like, you spend not- time, understand what you want to do, understand where you've got to be in the game um, and, and learn the skills. Mm, but maybe I'm just old-fashioned as well, but I get it, the world's changed. No, 100%. And I think for me, but, you know, I think some of that comes down to, you know, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on this, is uh, I see some coaches who... who maybe not so much now, but certainly I've seen it in the past where coaches have gone in, they're maybe not adequately qualified, but then they're going through those qualifications because they're being fast-tracked because they're, they're in, they're in the system. Um, and then, you know, the new, new, new rules, new, new things have come in where they're basically saying, well, you need to have X, Y, Z to be able to keep your role. And you need to have X, Y, Z to be able to get a role. And then the clubs get away with right, this coach, if a position is available for this position and someone takes the role, they need to be working towards what... We, we, yeah, look, in, in, in fairness, the clubs are all independent and autonomous and, and that will never change. And It's been like that last 20 years and it'll continue to be like that in the future. Um, and, and, and look, the, the whole industry, I, I touched on it when I started. When I started in recreation amenities, as an 18-year-old, 38 years ago, my CV, you know, it just, I wouldn't get that job now. I'd, I'd need my degree. The CV that got me a regional manager's job in the FA in 1998 would not get me an interview today to be a county football development officer. Mm. So there's always progression. 
that will all and there's always that academic inflation. That that's reality. Um, but it's also I think just 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 building up your CV, building up your experience. Um, you know, going to do the. We joke about the the balls, bibs, and cones. You know, I, you know, but it's a, it, it's do your apprenticeship. And, and 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 I'm not talking about. I'll probably give an idea for this. Isn't about age on a birth certificate. It's often about number of hours on the pitch, because. Often, I think years ago, we talked about, oh, you need 18 months for going to do your, you've done your level two, you need 12 months for you, go and do your UA for B. Well, if you coach one night a week for one hour, you probably need two or three years. If you're working in a situation where you're coaching six, seven hours a day, yeah. you're going to get the, it's, it's, it's that opportunity to do that. One of my best experiences when, when I was at Sunderland Poly, I went and worked in America for a year in a summer camp and just been on a pitch eight hours a day mm. for three months was brilliant. I loved it. Mm. I, can, I can relate to that definitely because I remember when I did my B licence, you know, a few years back and, you know, the the action plan said something as we go away and do 50 hours at this level before considering the UEFA A licence. Now, I guess if the tutor at the time actually took the, you know, took the time to maybe look at what I was doing at that point in time would realise actually 50 hours is three weeks of work for me. Yeah. So I'm doing about 25, 20 to 25 hours a week of coaching at that time already at that level. So um, it, it doesn't really paint a bigger picture. And I think it, I think more needs to be done on that level in terms of looking at each individual. And I think that, that's where things have evolved so much in the, you know, the introduction to the institute visits and stuff like that. So you can really understand the context of the environment that the learners are working in, um, what kind of level they're working at and what kind of, you know, you, you might envisage that timeline looking like. I and, and that becomes, you know, and that's what you're right. It's the interview you visit. It's the mentoring. It's not only the formal FA mentoring, but it's identifying a mentor you can work with and bounce ideas off and, mm. and just sometimes because no journey is just going to go keep going that way. Yeah. There will be, you know, you know, football's messy, life's messy. Hundred yeah. percent. And I think you know, just you know, just know as we start to wind down now, then obviously you know you've stepped away a little bit from the grassroots element of things, and you're now in your current role, would you mind just giving us a bit of more understanding of what your current role is and what that entails? Yeah. Yeah. So for the last 12 months and where I'm working now, but I've, I've moved more into the um, senior lead around FE education relations. So it was working with county affairs, maybe supporting there, but I did a lot of doing a lot of work on the international commercial about, um, so you might've seen courses that are run in Dubai or China. So it's about um, helping set some of them courses up. And working with the international relations department, so um, working with different federations and, and, and ideas, and sharing ideas, and um, talking to coaches about what we can learn and what we can share, because uh, football really is a global game. And yes, we're competitors when it comes to tournaments, but actually, it's in everyone's best interest to have to keep football as a world game. So, I've been very fortunate. I've 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 been able to go to some different countries and work with coaches, and it's great for development, and it's been great. Sometimes to work with different cultures and and, um, and 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 it keeps you on your toes and it keeps you creative as a coach as well. So mm-hmm. I have been I have been fortunate to do that. Um, and probably in the, in the next few years, I probably see myself doing opportunity to do more of that and um, more in that mentoring space. Mm-hmm. So I've really started to think and reflect about what what a mentor is and what what you can do and what what you can bring to it and what the role of a mentor is. I think that one of the that's probably one of the last programs we introduced in the grassroots space was around the mentoring program. Um, I think that was a massive benefit of the game. 
Brilliant. You know, just obviously as we start to wind down, like, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're, you know, you're phasing your way out of the FA. So what does that look like? And, you know, what's next for Liz Howie then? Uh, what's next? Yeah, who, who, who knows? I'm, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm facing it. I'm hoping it's not the end of the um, book, but it's the end of the chapter. I hope I'll still be doing stuff for the FA in the future. Um, who, who knows? Um, but in the, uh, you know, I've agreed to do a couple of uh, days a month with the Twinham Project, which is a project that David Dean established about working with the um, professional football clubs to take education football into prisons is a is a tool of engagement and development. Um, so I'm going to do some support work there, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, I'll continue to do some work with the international relations team, I think, at the FA uh, in there. And, and really, I just want to, um, you, know, you know, I just want to maybe enjoy and, and get back near the pitch a bit more. I've, I've, I've had that period in my career where I talk about being strategy and the politics of football and budgets. Um, let other people do that now. Let me get back. Uh, let me get back near the grass. Excellent. You know, just to, on, on a final note, then, if I gave you sixty seconds now to kind of wrap up some, you know, some golden nuggets for the listeners and the viewers, what would what would those be for those maybe to consider applying in their own journeys? I, I think it's. Um, have an idea of a plan about what you're looking to do, why you're involved in it, have your philosophy. I think that's important. Understand me. And by the way, that philosophy might change. Yeah. Or some of it some of it will be absolutely anchored, but some of it might change depending on what age group you're coaching and where you're coaching. Yeah. Um, continue to be a student of the game. Always looking for the what next. Yeah. And and just be just be wanting to be open minded. And, and Bobby Robson, and it's one of my favourite quotes, Bobby Robson said, you know, we, we, we are the guardians of the game and never forget that. And can you, your job, and it is a vitally important job, is to infuse and develop the next generation of players. And those next generation of players will also be the next generation of coaches, of referees, of administrators, of season ticket holders, of Sky TV subscription. Mm. Keep doing that. Not only... Keep developing them as human beings so they can make a meaningful role in society, but also as players and a love of the game. And actually, when it comes down to hand over the baton, can you hand it over in the same or a better state than when you found it? Because progress, the game will continue to develop. The mm. game will look different in 10 years' time than it does today. And are you going to be one of the gatekeepers that opens the door and helps people? Or you're going to be one of the gatekeepers who um, shuts the door. When you're in a position to help, are you one of the people who puts the stepladder down to help people up? Or do you pull the stepladder up to keep people down? Mm. I think they're the challenges we all have to ask ourselves as we come through. I've been very fortunate. Mm. But there's still lots of what to do. I still, I'm, you know, I'm going to stay active in the game as a volunteer. As I said, the, the chapter at the FA hopefully is a, a closing of a, a chapter, not the closing of a book. Um, but the games, you know, I, I love just the involvement in the game. So I, they'd be my key messages. There's probably a, I've waffled a bit there, but it's just keep enjoying it, keep a love and a passion for the game, and just pass on that flame to the next generation. Mm. And you know, just just kind of tail off the back of that, you know, speaking of the next generation, you know, 
just by having this conversation with me today, you know, you, you've you've made yourself part of the coaches network. So just on a final note for yourself, then what's the legacy that you'd want to leave behind for anyone that come, has come in contact with you? Um, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very proud to have worked to work for the FA and I'm proud to have worked with some great people because people make the difference. Yeah. And, and I think I have been fortunate that I had the opportunity to lead on some big projects, but it was actually to work with creative and, and some great people. And by the way, the FA will always have that. For all of the... It's an, it's an easy organisation to knock. Yeah. And, and, and we see it in the media, we, we see it, and I, and I get it, there are probably some people listening to this now and that have had negative experience of the FA. It is a, it's a, it's a massive organisation which has to service and support the nation's game and has lots of different challenges it has to face. Yeah. But all the time I've been involved in it, it's, it's, it's got people at its heart who have absolutely the best interest of the game at heart and want to make, it, want to make the difference. And so I think my, my, if you're asking me legacy, how I'd like people to remember it, almost that, you know, I tried to be the difference. I didn't get everything right. You know, you, you, you will not go through a career and, and get everything right. I look back in hindsight and think, oh, I wish we'd done that differently. And I wish we'd tried that now, not then. That will always be like that. But continue to keep driving forward. And I, and I, and I think in terms of legacy, I'm, I hope my legacy's in the future, not in the past. Oh, brilliant. Um, Les, I just want to thank you again for your time this morning. It was a very enjoyable conversation for me, and I'm sure it will be a, a very insightful um, one for the listeners and viewers as well. Um, yeah. Just on yeah, that. Yeah, absolute, just to say, look, an absolute pleasure. Um, keep up the good work. And, and also, just for everyone that's listening, just, just a big thank you. You are making a difference, and just continue to do that. Mm. And just on that note, you know, if, if anyone wanted to get in touch with you regarding anything that we've discussed today or beyond, is there some way they could do that? Yeah, yeah, please just... Um, uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Probably, probably just connect to me on LinkedIn and um, drop drop me some messages through that. It's probably the easiest way. I'm, I am a bit of a luddite when it comes, to, as my children keep reminding me, when it comes to other forms of uh, of, of social media um, in there. But no, happy to support and 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 yeah, happy to just do anything to support you and uh, the podcast in the future. Excellent. Well, there you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. 
From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.